You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in my last couple of interviews with Rick Roll, as we've kind of taken a deep dive into how he makes money in the junior mining stocks, he has twice mentioned John John Kaiser, my guest today, from kaiserresearch.com about how John is good historically for decades finding bottom fish in the junior mining sector. So what does that mean? How does John go about it? I reached out to John. He put together a presentation he's going to walk me and consequently you through in today's show. So John, thanks for coming on the show. Bill, thanks for having me on your show. And let's just get right into it. You've prepared some slides. Um, Inform us, how do you make money going about bottom fishing in the junior mining sector? And do you think it's a good time to do such? I think we're heading into a very good period in this uh, uh, final quarter of the year. It's usually also tax loss selling season. Uh, We were in a 10-year bear market that ended the middle of last year after the COVID response kicked in and gold price went up. Companies refinanced in a big way, except for the first quarter this year. It's been pretty much a, a bust for most companies in terms of share price. And part of the problem is we still have hideous assay turnaround uh, delays. We've got programs finished and they're waiting for results. They can't even respond to results and drill more holes because in places like Golden Triangle, winter is coming in. Now, you've mentioned that uh, Rick Rule talks about the bottom fishing method that, I, uh, that I'm a pioneer of. Uh, it started in the 80s. It's not the same anymore. In the 80s, uh, there was a 12-month hold period on private placements and companies would get rollbacked, reorganized, and then the people behind it would do a private placement, and there'd be like a one-year period before they could sell any stock. So I specialized in finding all these companies and then pointing them out uh, as the bottom fish list to people, and and they would accumulate it during this down period. That changed after 2000 when the uh, capital pool system, they started manufacturing fresh shells like these are like the, the SPACs that we have now with about six zeros added to the uh, Canadian uh, listing system. And they shortened the whole period to four months. So the power people could take any shell out there, halt it, put all the private placements in place, take four months for the RTO to get done. And then it'd come back and it'd be high priced and there'd be no bottom fishing opportunity. So I don't really look for shells anymore. I look more for story type companies, which have people that have some sort of track record. And I look for reasons why the stock is cheap. The the key thing is still the the cyclical part that's evident in the chart pattern. And and you want to have something that's flatlining or bottoming or just gently emerging from a bottom. And it's all about the, the life cycle of the company. Where is it? What can change the company? And I've got here a list of, uh, you know, the the sort of six, seven categories that I look at. And so what we're going to do is just walk through them to show people how to go about thinking about resource juniors. And for audio listeners only, uh, John has a slide and I'm going to link to that PowerPoint presentation in the show notes so you can visually see that in addition to listening on audio form. 
Now, now when gold was running last year, you know, pushing through 2000, there was a bit of a momentum gambling aspect to the resource juniors. People figured it's going to 3000. Uh, everything's going to be fantastic. They chased in. But as soon as gold stalled and reversed, that momentum disappeared. Now, momentum gambling is what the younger generations are doing right now. They're into Bitcoin. They'll even do foreign exchange gambling. And they play these winner-take-all stories like Tesla, which go to valuations that assume that every other car company is going to fail down the road and there will be only one giant Tesla company. And that's why it has this current valuation. And in these cases, the trend is your friend. You never, you don't really need to know anything. You just need to be on it in the right direction. When you lose, it means finally you've gotten unlucky and you don't know why. Fundamental outcome gambling is what the resource juniors are all about. It's all about a deposit, which has finite limits, tonnage, grade, and the costs of mining it. And, and that's it's mined out in 10, 10, 20 years. And there's a way of valuing that which creates an upside limit. Now, this may seem a negative for resource stocks, but it's also a positive because you can construct an expectation of what that fundamental outcome may look like. And then you can place a bet on that outcome. And that's called fundamental outcome gambling. And the whole rational speculation model that I've developed creates a framework so that when you go and gamble on resource juniors, you're not just gambling on the trend, you're gambling on expectations, and you have the ability to generate those expectations, and your expectations may be different from the market. So it's not just this following the consensus, it's even betting against the market. You can be a contrarian in the resource junior game, both at the earlier discovery stage part of the uh, uh, expiration cycle or in the later feasibility demonstration part of the cycle. And that's what keeps me interested in fundamental outcome gambling because the database that I've created, the way I structure the information, it makes it possible to use my search engine to find these situations and do homework. But again, it isn't just day trading. You do have to put in work or rely on somebody who has done that work check it out, and then, you know, join that person in placing that bet. So the first thing that uh, you got to think about are the, is the cycles. And the general market cycles, the ones that are terrorizing us now, uh, the metal target cycle, target metal cycle, unfortunately, this is what hurts the juniors. Like gold right now at 1750 to 1800 that's fantastic, but it's not trending up. People are worried it's going down. So that affects people's enthusiasm for the sector. Um, but the company life cycle, this is what bottom fishing is all about. Where is that company in its overall life cycle and its project? Where is it in the exploration development cycle? And then scaling even smaller, zooming even smaller, uh, the seasonal cycle. Is there a, a, a winter summer work season, that constraints thing. And then there's the data flow cycle. What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for a permit? Are we waiting for a, a assay results? What are we waiting for? But the most important part is the speculation cycle. And that's where the promotion comes in, the marketing, where people start to anticipate the news flow, things coming together. And when news breaks like a discovery hole, that's the most exciting part about ex these resource juniors, because then we do get momentum gambling. Then we get this frenzy that creates what I call the S-curve, which is where you get 
a reward far beyond what you actually would get if the market behaved rationally. And you can make money without geological success with, when that occurs, right? Yes, yes. And, and we'll get into that shortly. Now, this is a graphic I've created to remind me how scary it is. I've taken the, uh, you know, the, the, the 10 past years, starting 2010 uh, uh, and in 1920, and normalized them. And, and the red is, of course, what the Dow did. And the blue is what the Dow has done in the last 10 years. And you can see, <laughs> just like what's to join what happened here and do this. And so right now, it is scary to do bottom fishing because if we get a 15, 20% uh, correction in the general markets and that triggers an ongoing recession and the policies end up creating a depression, well, that's not going to be very good for owning bottom fish. So you have to go into this knowing that this cycle is um, perhaps not going with us. But people have argued maybe we're actually here and we have a roaring 20s type scenario where we stick handle past the COVID mess and the economy starts growing again. Now, gold is also way up here. It's uh, at a level, you know, pretty much where it was uh, at its peak in, in 2011. And, and that's fantastic uh, for the resource resource juniors, but the market's not taking it seriously. So if gold is the metal that you're looking for, well, gold's a measure for uncertainty. And if a lot of these terrible things that we're worrying about, such as, say, China annexing Taiwan and, and military conflict and, and all these energy crises, if all those come, come to bear, gold will probably respond on the upside and in a much more stable manner than, say, Bitcoin, which can be anything, anytime. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't refer to anything at all. So, but the market does like to, uh, you know, follow the trend in gold. And right now the trend is sideways with the worry, the bias to it going lower. So again, excellent final quarter situation. Stocks are not up on expectation that gold is going to the moon. In fact, uh, people think gold is going to fail and Bitcoin is going to go to the moon. And the same thing in the macro world. Now, like copper here is the representation of the macro economy. Uh, copper should do very well. This price of $4 plus should be the new reality. If the energy transformation becomes reality, there's going to be a lot more copper needed. And uh, so it's tied both to a macroeconomic growth. And, and you know, the IMF is projecting the economy to grow from $22 trillion to $28 trillion over the next five years. And that's an awful lot of extra copper demand that's coming. But again, we're dealing with this anxiety right now of, you know, everything's going to fall apart. So again, a good time to look at juniors that are involved in nickel, copper, the base metals, and some of the critical metals, which uh, you know are going to benefit if we do not go into a recession. So that's the sort of the macro big picture cycle stuff. We're going to pretend it's all going to work out well in the future and not worry about it. So now we're going to go hunting for resource juniors that are qualify as bottom fish. Now, these two charts here, this was a bottom fish here. I formally picked it up in, in early 2017, and uh, I made it a favorite at the end of 2019, 
2018-2019, repeated it here. And then, of course, it dipped in the COVID period. And this is uh, SK Mining for audio listeners. Yes, SK Mining, Mining Corp. And the reason I made this a, um, a, a bottom fish was because SSR optioned their key f- property in the uh, Golden Triangle area. And they were going to spend 10, 10 million bucks. And they actually did spend almost, almost that much and dropped the option. But uh, what changed at the end of 2019 here was the company decided to go it alone and not do the farm out, farm out story. And you can see here, they started getting financing and it's gone, done extremely well. I made it a formal favorite uh, right here before it took off when I saw the, the financing come in and that they were serious. And now it is a, a play that could actually become the turnaround for the uh, resource junior sector, even though the golden triangle season is winding down. Now, and that's a tenfold move, right? We're looking yes, at on and, the and, chart. And, and this one could you know, undergo another tenfold move and we'll, we'll, we'll show why and how that could be possible possible down the road. But when I do my screening, I look for these types of flatlining charts. And then I also do my history. I go back and find out why has this company done nothing for all these years? You need to come up with a reason. Why is this bottom fish status going to change? Because there's hundreds of them out there and you want to buy the ones that are going to go sooner than later. And do most of the bottom fish you've found they have an asset that will become more valuable in the market size versus just a pure exploration play? Um, well, the exploration plays, I look at them in terms of potential assets. So potential outcomes. And those are the kind that are uh, like discovery exploration. And, and then there's the feasibility demonstration. The feasibility demonstration ones typically are at bottom fish prices because their grade just isn't high enough to work at the prevailing metal price. That's why also thinking about the target metal cycle is really important. If you think copper is temporarily low, then you bottom fish for this. So you don't, if you think it's going to stay low, like it did in the 80s when Chile came on stream and just flooded the market, or zinc when China came on stream and started giving the world all the zinc that, that it needed. Now, the company life cycle, most juniors go through a cycle of uh, you know, either IPO or reorganization down to like a few million shares, rebuild the structure, come up with a story, promote the story, try to deliver real wealth. And if they fail, well, the project's a bust, the shares are owned by the general public, and it gets rolled back again. So to avoid companies that are due for a rollback. And that's, you'll have 500, 600 companies flatlining that look like bottom fish. Those are the the dead fish you want to avoid. You want to find the ones that have a chance of coming to light. So structure is the code word for what percentage of the company is owned by people who care about the company's future and are in a position to do something about it. And in the case of SK Mining Corp, 
the group that had it in the first decade of this century, well, they spent $30 million on that property and really didn't deliver any discoveries. And they got kicked out by some pissed off shareholders who brought in Mac Balcom, and he took over this company and over the last decade, kept it alive, nurtured it along. And although the formal insiders own only 16% of the stock, this company, if you followed it, you will know that there are other hidden shareholders that have bought into the story. So this stock, even though there's almost 200 million shares fully diluted, is a lot less liquid than you would think where management owns like 1% of the stock and doesn't care and is going to roll back the stock and wipe out all the shareholders. And within my website, each company has a profile. This is the structure and people section. I list all the people, what role they play. I even have their backgrounds if I can figure out what that is. I also show what the uh, uh, role in the company is. Like some people are just directors. They're, They're just placeholders. They're not important. And I've also got something called the people tree, where if you click on this, this becomes the trunk. And then all the companies associated with each one they end up displaying on this long, hideous page with charts. So, you know, people like Rick Rule, Doug Casey will say, you got to know the people. Well, how do you, as an ordinary speculator, get to know the people? It, it takes years of experience. But with this tool, you can just go scroll down there. You can look at the chart patterns. You can see who has what role, who is like a serial CEO, who is like, a, you know, the, the, the VP of exploration. And you can start getting a sense of, do these people have a track record? It isn't a substitute for decades of experience of betting on people and losing and making a little memory mark saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person anymore. But you can use this tool to research the track record of the people and feel comfortable that these people also know what, what to do. And the other key aspect that's also easy to search for besides structure and the people is capital. If you don't have money, you can't do anything. Now, if you have a deposit, you know, that you've spent oodles of money on before and the grade wasn't good enough and for the current price that we have and the stocks priced as if the the asset is worthless, uh, uh, then you don't need to have much money. Then you just need to have enough money to pay the overhead to stay listed. And those are these what we call sleeper type bottom fish. And uh, some people will hold them for five, five, eight years. And then boom, suddenly the iron ore goes crazy. And, uh, and then they make not just five, 10 baggers, but you know, 20, 30, 40 baggers, because these things have all been cleaned up. And when the metal price cycle changes, away they go. But if you're an expiration company, your target You can't do anything without putting money into it, either by farming it out to a major or by doing it yourself. John, what happened if it's a a metallurgical issue that's associated with that optionality play? Like, how do you view that? That makes it a lot more complex, doesn't it? Well, well, see, the, the metallurgy comes in the cost side of the equation. You can always get the metal out, but at what price? So if you need to roast it, you need a big, you know, uh, um, a pressure oxidation system, which is extra capital cost, extra energy cost, and that gets gets uh, put into what the what that grade means. That's why simply grade by itself 
is not good. Ounces in the ground, it's meaningless. It's what's the recoverable amount at some reasonable cost where the rock value, where, where, where what you extract is more than the cost of extracting it. So in this case here, um, in my site, all the, the venture exchanges is nice. It, it publishes all these financings that take place. And I also show up little markers in the charts that you you, you saw earlier. And I uh, every quarter, I have my uh, people input all this stuff. And you can go in there and you can search on working capital, find companies that have positive money in different ranges. And then you can look at this here. And um, what does it mean? Um, the key numbers are working capital, but you also have to be careful with a number like this. In this case, receivables, marketable securities. In this case, it's marketable securities. Well, they usually aren't. If you have a bunch of shares in another junior, you can't get rid of it. It's not like cash. So cash equivalence is generally the hard number. And of course, liabilities are hard numbers too. And people work, worry about the overhead burn, how much is being burnt up. Uh, for a month, in this case, a lot is being burnt, uh, but but that's because companies will include expiration costs in expenses. Most of them just shove them into the balance sheet, the, the long-term asset start. So it's tricky. And one of the expenses you need to ignore are these like stock option compensation expenses. That is an accounting trick, uh, depreciation, all these things. They're not real amounts. That's just writing off uh, fictitious fictitious stuff. You want to know what real cash they're burning to see how long before this disappears. So do not look for, avoid companies that have negative working capital or are on the threshold, unless there is some fundamental asset that, that is worth more than, uh, than, than, than the market cap of the company. And then of course, the, uh, we ha I have all the news releases in my system in the profile. If you click on the SK mining profile, you'll see this. And this is where you, you have to get the story. Like, what is the company trying to accomplish? And no search engine will answer that story. That's elbow grease. You got to read all this stuff. You got to get go through the corporate presentation. Uh, watching these 10, 15-minute uh, presentation is an easy way to get a sense for what is the story that the company is pushing. And in terms of the, the uh, 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 expiration discovery ones, uh, what, where is it? What is it? What are they trying to accomplish? And of course, one of the problems is they're not allowed to say what the size of the prize is. They can point to some analogy and all that, but they can't help you say that this is going to, they can't tell you this is going to be a $2 billion prize and, and here's what it needs to look like. That's actually what people like myself bring to the table. I look at all this and I stick handle past all these uh, regulatory restrictions about forward-lookingness. And I say, well, here's what it appears that they are trying to accomplish. So the, you've got a project you've identified. In this case, they call it the Sib Lulu. It's in the golden triangle. Then you need to know what stage is that. And your, your mining exploration development cycle has nine stages. The first three are you don't have a resource estimate yet. You just have a target, a potential. This will be the concept. Uh, you start to develop uh, targets. Then you raise money to drill. And you can drill and drill and drill and come up with nothing. It's only when you have a hole whose grade is sufficiently robust and the geological context is right 
that you get discovery delineation. And your, your odds of delivering any one of these outcomes, this is the progression. So the, the, the exploration development cycle does two things. One, it reduces the uncertainty about what it is that you have, but it also reduces your ability to, to dream. Once you are here and have a resource, you've got that finite cap. You know whether you're going to be like a $100 million future outcome or a half billion or world-class $2 billion type of outcome. So this understanding, this whole concept, this is critical for fundamental outcome gambling in resource juniors. And because the fair value is so low or, or the certainty is so low, when you start moving up into these areas, your gains are tremendous. So here is that tedious table converted into a graphic. So in this case, what I've done is I've taken the, 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 the current valuation of the company's 100% project and that at about 200 million shares fully diluted, that's a $450 million uh, type of value assigned right now. And if you take the, the odds there, which were two and a half to 5% to go beyond just the discovery delineation, actually be worth something, you're looking, if that's fair value, you're looking at a future price target of $57. And in terms of absolute numbers, what the project's worth, it needs to have an NPV of $11.4 Now, that's pretty rich. I don't know too many projects, mining projects, that end up being that worth that much. How, how do you calculate future dilution? Because obviously they're going to have to issue shares to get yes, there. Th that, that is a problem. And, uh, and, and you always have to keep that in mind. That's why I also have other graphics where I just present this, how the, where it is in terms of, of valuation. Uh, that's where if you've got a farmed out project, you don't have that problem unless it's a lousy farm out deal where you have to start paying your 40% share after, you know, 4 million is spent on a project. It's going to take 50 million bucks to, to take to a production production decision. So if you are going for juniors that have farm outs, look for carried to production deals because they, the market does not give much value to the minority partner. If they have to end up paying their share of the future ongoing expenses. And if you've got a major, well, that's great. You know, they can take it all the way, but you know, they will also be brutal in the way they flow the information out and the decisions they make to undermine the ability of their junior partner, because they want to clean them out at a very low valuation sometime down the road when it's convenient for them to do so. And this yellow thing, this is called the S curve. And there's this peculiar thing in the resource junior sector that when you do have a real discovery play, somehow the market manages to achieve a peak pricing, which uh, in, in, in total absolute terms of, of you, you know, like, like, like monetary number, like 100 million, 200 million, whatever, it manages to peak at the valuation that the project has after it's spent another 30, 40 million bucks and gone all the way to a construction construction decision. And so this is the exciting part here. This is where- Is this you, the Kaiser is, curve contra the Lassonde curve that I'm looking at? It's, it's, it's a variation of the same thing. It's yeah. this tendency of the market way overshoot 
And then when you get into the boring stuff, when people see that, you know, the, 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 the revenue limit, and then you f- try to figure out what the costs are, this actually becomes the value trough where, where it's actually a bargain. And the reason it's- If uh, you're willing to wait, right? <laughs> yes, it's the timing, like how long, like like take per, per, Perpetua, which used to be Midas Gold, like, like that's just taking an eternity to get this thing permitted and it always costs more money. So, and then just to wrap up with this here, the seasonal cycle for this company, winter comes in October, they're already shutting down. Their assays probably won't start flowing until they've moved their equipment out and their speculation cycle. They're sort of in the middle. The market uh, has not done much during this year because there's been no fresh information. So the question is, what is the market waiting for? So, so that's the, uh, you know, the company's still in mid-life cycle, but is this something you should pay attention to right now? This is not a traditional bottom fish because the chart is not. This is a former bottom fish. So here's the basics. Anybody who spent any time with the resource sector understands the discounted cash flow model which is you take the present value of each year's uh, cash flow and discount it to the present. And he, this example here in 2016, I pegged Arizona Mining and it's Hermosa Taylor they, uh, discovery. And they didn't have a resource estimate yet. They had one for this oxide portion that metallurgy wasn't going to make it work. But when they chased it down plunge, they found the sulfide version, which didn't have those uh, Headaches, and you could start doing the numbers based on the the uh, drill intersections and the size of the target. You see, it's this big, and I ended up uh, sort of doing an outcome visualization and predicting that this could, would end up being worth a uh, you know three three billion dollars, and put a buy-in recommendation during that discovery stage, and it ended up uh, being taken out two years later by. By, by BHP, and it was like smack in the middle of that uh, valuation channel, which the PEA and the PFS they did ended up validating the numbers. So it is possible to actually visualize the outcome and what it is worth down the road. And it is then walking through here that you make the money. And this is where with the, uh, once that you get a resource estimate, it's all about progressing through these stages. And when the company meets these major milestones, then there's risk removed and you're supposed to get an increase in the valuation as a result. So longer term investors who prefer the feasibility demonstration cycle, they will crunch the numbers in that. Uh, for the discovery expiration, you're dealing with uh, you know, very, very low success odds, but that also means really big potential returns. So in the case of SK mining, the dream, of course, there's this 30 kilometer long um, stretch of uh, uh, basin rocks that have been folded and, and, and tilted, uh, marine basin, where the SK Creek deposit was found. So I said, well, these things occur in clusters. What if this company found another one? So I imagined an SK Creek clone and took all the numbers from SK Creek plunked it in there and you create your little, you can do this on the spreadsheet. I've done it within my uh, uh, access database system. And you put in all these numbers and you go and invent the mining scenario. In this case, I took the uh, 
operating rate that they had in their scenario, came up with the costs that would apply today. And all of these feed into your discounted cash flow model, which is basically revenues up top, then costs, taxes, and then you have your after-tax cash flow. And this is what the valuation is based on. So in this case, the discount rate is something that a lot of people are unfamiliar with, and it is critical to the discounted cash flow model. And, and T-bills are, are priced like that. You, 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 you don't buy a, a $100,000 T-bill for 100000 bucks and collect interest on it. You, you um, buy it at a discount from the day that it's due, and the interest rate is the amount you pay uh, compound what you get each year, compounded, adding up to the whatever $100,000 that you get in your five-year five year T-bill. And annuities work the same way. And a discounted cash flow is the same thing. So the discount rate, the higher it is, the lower your NPV. And the industry loves to use 5% for gold, but it isn't really, really legitimate to do that. So I've created a system here where I actually look at all the risk factors and have different weightings. And, and I've broken it down so that instead of just grabbing some number that make, makes a pleasing result, I force myself to say, oh, is environmental permitting going to be tough in this area? Social license, are there First Nations issues or heroes or something? Title, how sketchy is the title? Did they stake it or is there a complex of agreements in there? The tax regime, is it one where the taxes are going to increase? Geopolitical, not so much a problem in Canada, but if you're in, say, Congo or somewhere like that, you worry about it. And of course, infrastructure. And then technical issues, is this thing going to have metallurgical issues and stuff like that? And then, of course, the management competence. So I'm able to assign risk ratings. And in the lowest set, if everything's perfect, it's a 5% rate. But if you end up with like a 15%, that's a way of telling you, ooh, this is a really sketchy project. And you're looking yeah. for a reason not to invest as you fill out all this spreadsheet, right, John? That's yeah. what you're looking it's for. It's a way of forcing me to realize, you know, everybody put in a bunch of work, start to like the company. You, you program yourself to, I don't want to find out that this, I should avoid this. So, so you, you blind yourself and tools like this force you by breaking it down, force you to think about this. And then you see, ah. And don't you think you can be a more objective with this versus like, I like the management. He was nice to talk to. I've enjoyed hanging out with him at, at the conference, right? Because those things can kind of blind you to the, what it looks like on paper. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you go to a conference and talk to them. They're smooth talkers. Uh, you have to be pretty sophisticated and ask trick questions to get answers that, uh, sort of reveal what they're really worry, worried about. Uh, do you but, do this? Because uh, Rick Rule said this in the interview where he mentioned you. He said he tries to get them to lie to him, where he'll research the company, no information, and ask them a question to where it would be in their best interest in the short term to lie to him. So if they lie, he says, now I know I can't trust this guy for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, when I call people, I have their profile up in front of me. I know more about their company than the CEO does. So I can start asking questions. And of course, a question jogs their memory. They could never like churn it out. And, uh, and, and if they start giving me answers that I know are clearly different from what has been documented in the public domain, that's my red flag. This person is, is not 
not trustworthy. Uh, if, if they sort of say, I, I don't remember that or no, then, you know, you give them a chance. But, but another trick to do is uh, when you're talking to these people, don't ask them about the merits of their project. Ask them about the merits of a competitor's project. Because, of, and this is especially good for geologists, because if a geologist can piss on somebody else's project for legitimate reasons, they will do so. So you, you almost research the geology of a company in a roundabout way by asking everybody else in the room what they think about that project over there. And if they have any familiarity, they will they will point out the the, the risk factors. That but don't you think a- envy plays a... So I've been told, like, don't invest in this company, even though the market is valuing them, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And, I, and I've been told, okay, that's, it's not what it, they say it is. And I often ask myself, is that just envy speaking, just because they've achieved a market valuation much higher than the person that's telling me that? I mean, do you factor that into, I guess this is all interpersonal discernment issues uh, we're no, talking about? Uh, no, it's absolutely because, you know, we've gone through cycle, we've gone through structure, we've gone through capital, we've gone through people, and, and we're at the story point. And, and at the end of the day, it's how is the market pricing the story right now? And that's the value part of the equation. And that's what my rational speculation model is all about. And the best promoted stocks, I avoid them all the time because they have you know, more than fair value. They offer poor speculative value because the reward is already embedded in the pricing. And that's a key thing that I want to point out here. I, I ha- I'm embarrassed to admit that it wasn't until about, you know, four or five years ago when I, I read Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow that I realized that I kind of like the majority of people who don't understand how to price a bet. And the simple example is if somebody offers you, okay, here's a, here's a, here's a dollar, a loony, Canadian, Canadian dollar coin. We're going to do a toss. And you know that the outcome is, has a 50% chance of being heads or tails in, in the long run. The question is, how much money will you bet on that coin toss? And the math is simply simple. It's the certainty of the outcome multiplied by the value of the outcome. So fair value is 50% of a dollar. You should never bet more than 50 cents to get a dollar. And somebody is willing to take a 30 cent bet on that dollar. Oh yeah, get all the money because you're gonna make money so long as that person's willing to you know, keep doing the coins. And, good, and that's what I call good value. Poor value is when they say, well, I'll give you 75 Cents. If you pay 75 cents, I'll let you have this 50% coin toss win. And the whole exploration sector is structured like this is what this certainty ladder does. So if you have a dream of a billion dollar outcome, the fair value should be that percentage of that outcome. And you got to get this into your head. And here for this particular Example of SK Mining's uh, SK Creek clone, it would be worth $3.8 billion if it uh, was actually delivered. And here you can see this is the fair value price range. So when you look at the stock at two bucks, 
you sort of say, oh, that's poor speculative value. There's a big chunk of the reward. And, uh, and, and they don't really have all the holds together so that you can see the tonnage and all that. But this is where the S-curve, this is the S-curve pattern. So it's at two bucks. But if they, with this batch of results coming out, start showing that there are SK Creek uh, type zones present that hang together, you're going to see the, a frenzy and that could take it anywhere here. Now that becomes the la-la land and that's where you're doing your momentum gambling. And if you bought down in here, then the trick is to not sell too soon. You have to understand what is the potential future outcomes value and how is the market pricing it now. And that's where paying attention to the data flow and stitching together the numbers, creating little tonnage models, uh, grade uh, or length times width times depth and putting grade and then making your own little model. What is the shaping up to be? Oh, it's actually a much smaller scenario. Now, in this case, uh, uh, for this pricing, $2 to be fair, you actually need something better than SK Creek 2. But that's where researching the story becomes interesting because you're dealing with a 25 kilometer segment of land and where the work they've done is showing, oh, here's a VMS pinpoint. Here's a VMS pinpoint. There is it. Well, how many of them are there? Are any of them as rich as, as, as SK Creek 1? Or are some of them maybe not as rich, but bigger? Is this a district play? So when they, if they start delivering further confirmation of this, this is what S-curve is really about. It's, it's not the, it, it's the market arguing about how much bigger it could get. Is this going to be another SK Creek 2? Or is it going to be a half dozen SK Creek 2? So that's where then the craziness and the market comes, all the hype comes in. And what I look for bottom fish at the discovery expiration stage, I look for ones that have a geological context that could deliver a discovery hold that allows this open-ended speculation. If it's just a one vein that they're drilling, well, you know, it's going to be a thousand meters long, a meter wide, and go down three, 400 meters. You know, I can see what the limit is. But in this type of play, it's a different scenario. So that's going back into the story and figuring out the scope of the story. How big is the scope? How is the evidence shaping up to support the scope of that story? And then, John, when your downside becomes greater than your perceived potential upside, that's when you sell? Is that how you play that probabilities? Yeah, when it gets too high, like... Here, I've, with this outcome visualization of, uh, of the uh, uh, $3.8 million SK Creek clone, uh, that would end up being worth 19 bucks if they don't have to dilute more. And of course, if, if the stock starts going in here, your dilution rate to raise the money to keep going goes down. So, so the hope is management's competent, can suck in a lot of money during the frenzy to take care of moving it through here. So if I'm convinced that there's only going to be one SK Creek Two within that whole property, when it starts getting into this range here, I would start to sell. And, and, and Rick Rule, he loves to do that uh, line of, I uh, made all my money selling too soon. And, and that's really a, a bottom fishing principle is don't try to get it right. Be always wrong. Sell some too soon and some too late. 
and you'll always have to pay a ton of money to the tax man as a result of that. It's trying to pick the perfect top. That's impossible because you never know where the S-curve is going to peak. And, and this, 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 the S-curve could even go crazier because if they start showing evidence for six, six uh, uh, SK Creek 2s, then the market will say, well, why not a dozen? And it'll go in this insane mode. And we haven't had one of those in a long time. That's what used to drive the great Canadian area play, like Voises Bay, uh, Lac de Gras. Um, we, we haven't had one of these plays in a long time where everybody says, wow, this little company did it. My little company can do it too. And, and, we, and, and especially when it's in an area where it hasn't been done before. Well, if it's a new type of deposit, um, well, all this neighboring ground could have that too. Nobody looked at it with the right pair of geological glasses. So this is a powerful tool, graphical tool that has all the assumptions in here. It's hard work to create these ones. Uh, uh, it's easier for the discovery exploration ones because you just pick an existing deposit and say, I think this is what's here. And if the results don't support it, you have to abandon it and come up with something smaller. And then the thing ends, this, this blue channel sinks way down here. And then you know you have to get out of it. And then so again, the milestone timeline, this is the thing that people forget about permitting, logistics, uh, assay, turnaround, all these things. How long does it take to get the metallurgical studies? You have to get that into your head. And the results from these things are all events, unlike momentum gambling, where it's just, you know, somebody mentioned something, stocks take off, uh, then they go down. Um, in the case of the resource juniors, it's in these, it's, it's almost digital in that you come out with the assays, what does it mean? Either it goes down or it lurches up. There's a repricing. And the key is to get a sense of what to expect and make sure that the market isn't already embedding this in the stock price uh, so that if the news does come out favorable, you do get upside validation. And this year, this has not been the case with a lot of companies because this market's been in such a negative funk about where the you know metal prices and resource sector is going to go to. So this is a fertile year for bottom fishing, even, even higher companies. Uh, uh, when they start putting out results, it may not have the flashy intersection that becomes like a barn burner, no brainer, uh, a discovery hole. But people paying close attention to the geological context, they'll be able to see it's coming together. And, and, and this may end up being like an incredible buy here with ignition happening, say, in the second quarter of next year when they are gearing up for going back into the field and have received all the results from before. Um, ideally, you get to keep drilling year round. So you also look for these plays where if they get a hit, they can just keep going and going and going and not have to spend six months waiting for, for the snow to melt. And so that was an example of one that started off as a bottom fish, was disappointing for three years while I followed it, then came to life as all these things came together. They're financed. They've got a geologist, uh, John De Decker, in there, rethinking all the geology, doing it in a very systematic manner from the perspective of a guy who did a PhD in uh, 
VMS type systems uh, with people like Thomas Monarchy, a VSP, VMS expert on the advisory board. All this now looking at this district play in a completely different manner. So for me, that's fine, uh, but I'm looking for the next SK Creek. And so the, I have a search engine and there are, you can combine uh, company per level parameters with project parameters. So here's the kinds of things that you can put together, like the, the price range, you like 2029 20, centers, uh, you can limit it by market cap. You don't like stocks with a gazillion shares out. Well, maybe you can limit it to this group. Uh, I wouldn't really bother with these small ones because they tend to be illiquid and you can't buy a meaningful position. Also, the insider percentage. Now, keep in mind, in mind this is only disclosed insiders. In the old days, they used to own a lot more in the 80s and 90s when I did the shell-type bottom fishing. Uh, but now there are many hidden shareholders and you can't see that. So if I see 5% or better, I like that. I don't like ones where it says those are just custodian people in charge. And is this ASX as well as uh, Canadian? Companies? Yeah, you can choose ASX listed companies. Uh, you can choose CSE. You can choose all the Canadian companies. It's it's those, it's the uh, 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 Canadian exchanges and the ASX that you can search. And of course, with the ASX, uh, I probably need to create a category of like billion, billion or more type, type, type shares. And of course, the working capital, this is the one for me, what I look for are companies with this, this, I, I circle this, select this whole bunch. Based on the last quarterly filing, John, that's where you get that information. Yeah. So, so every, every, uh, every quarter, the, the, they file the financials. And of course that shows up about two months later. So, you know, it's old and, uh, and, and, and you search on that, you pick something like this and you pick your, your issued range and you click on a search. But <laughs> if you're also interested in gold projects or, uh, or, or advanced projects or a particular region, <laughs> you can do a region selection. Uh, this one, I really don't use that much anymore, but it, it, whatever metal you pick in here, uh, you, you they all need to be in that collection of target metals. And then this here, either go for discovery delineation and earlier or. And John, how in the world do you get all this information? Do you have researchers working for you? Because this is so much work and you know, like going through all of those quarterlies and everything. Yeah, no, I, I have, I've trained teams of people. And during the summer I would have from the high school, uh, uh, people who are going off to college, I would come in, they would intern, uh, I would actually pay them, not just exploit them and teach them all this stuff. And, and then I would send, I send out these modules to these people to, to input, input for me. So some of it, a fair amount I do myself uh, because doing it, you, that gives you a better feel. If, if you're just processing data others have done, you don't learn it. You don't know what's, what's interesting, what isn't interesting. You have to do a lot of searching. And we also input the resource estimates. So <clears throat> you can't really pick the metal, but you can pick the sort of tonnage range and the rock value and the, and the gross metal value <clears throat> and limit it. And then again, you would pick something with one of these, one of these stages. And when you get the results, they look like this. And some of them have a little partial write-up. Most of them don't because I don't have enough hours in the day 
to do all that. But that to me is the fun part. I put in a query that has some sort of context to it. And then I just scroll through. And sometimes there's like 400 companies. And the beauty is looking at these charts. Like, like I look for charts, like, like everything right now, unfortunately, is doing this. So it's not really good bottoming things. You, you have to make a guess that uh, it will bottom at the end of this year. But I go through this and, and I'll spend hours. And this is a dashboard. You click on the name and you get into the big profile with all the detailed information. And you can also go to like a stock house or in the case of Australia, hot copper. And you can go to the company's website and start poking around. So, so this really is a do-it-yourself research platform that endeavors to cover the whole spectrum of resource listing companies. And what we've described here uh, in this. Uh, um, so uh, you're giving away fishing equipment. You're not just handing people a fish with what yeah, you yeah, developed like, here. Yeah, like like a, a equipment, a tool rental. Come, I'm, I'm saving people time. You try to do this on your own. You can't do it. You waste all your time just gathering the data. I gather the data, provide the selection tools, and then it's up to you. Because when I was really popular with the in the bottom fishing days, the problem was I'd find these fantastic bottom fish. I'd publish my list. And then whoever saw it first would jump in the stock and go from 20 cents to 40 cents. And so you were the catalyst. It, <laughs> yeah, but by putting the spotlight on it, because yeah. they can bottom fish tend to be illiquid i can't make a mass market peddling bottom fish because the if i put the the spotlight on one boom it takes off and my subscribers say well thank you john that was good for the people who already owned it but not good for me who's paying you to find these things so i create a system where people can find it uh, themselves and in the future version next year probably not going to do favorites anymore in fact well favorites will become a free product and this becomes more a research platform even a bottom fish repair shop because a lot of these companies are bottom fish because there's some piece missing like management doesn't know how to present its story or promote and these are things that can be fixed so we'll identify these things that they'll become kind of a club of people who who through the slack forum collaborate point things out and and we'll have hundreds of them identified and People will accumulate them at their own leisure. And when one of them suddenly gets its act together and takes off, like let's say China does annex uh, um, Taiwan. Well, guess what that will do for rare earth deposits outside of uh, China? All of them are in play. So boom, something like uh, maybe a critical metals or leading edge. Well, suddenly the rare earth prices will be high enough for them to be in the money and they'll take off. And we'll have already contextualize that and said, here's what needs to happen. This and this people will own it. Stock starts taking off. Then we introduce it as a free public favorite. And it's already doubled or tripled for the uh, Kaiser research do it yourselfers. And maybe it'll go up two or three times more from there. And, and, and that's really the, the best way to deal with a product like this, where you have to be sophisticated. Most people don't want to do all this work. So I'm going after a small group of people for whom this is fun. This is entertainment. Their fundamental outcome gambling is for, um, you know, spread over time, like 12 months, 24 month cycles. They have other things to do with the rest of their time. They don't want to be a day trader trying, trying to end up uh, plus uh, 
trading the swings and stocks, momentum gambling, at the end of the day, it's not fulfilling, it's exhausting, and ultimately addictive and destructive. Resource sector gambling can be entertaining, fun, and it doesn't need to suck up all your time. So this is the opposite of what Rick Rule says some speculators do, where it's got a hunch, bet a bunch. This right here is the opposite of that, isn't it? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> a hunch is not good enough. Uh, and uh, uh, if you're going to hold something for a long period, you know, that's potential dead money. It needs to be more than a hunch. You have to have a vision of what the fundamental outcome could be, what needs to happen to make this reality. Maybe it is the rare earth price going going up five times from its current level. Um, maybe it's a discovery hole that changes the grade. I mean, there's there's deposits where, you know, the previous guys drilled it off. It's like, um, you know, 0.7 gram per ton gold, you know, 100 million tons type of thing. And then somebody starts to rethink it and they drill off to the side somewhere and says, here's where the real fluid path was in the sponges. They find something much better within the existing boring deposit that just doesn't make it at the prevailing price. And that's also become a thing that I've done more in recent years. I look at these existing deposits that don't make it at the metal prices that we have. So they're an optionality bet and the metal price going up. But I also look to see, have they really found everything that there is to be found? If, if new geologists come in there and look at it, and also digitization, all this uh, you know, ability to put, pour all this data into digital format and spin it and run studies on it, uh, this whole younger crowd of geologists, uh, they're, they're leveraging what took geologists decades of experience uh, to, to learn, to understand when they see the data. They can now see it in three dimensions, and it's their creativity. They still need to understand all the intricacies of, of, of a deposit, how it works, how it formed, and all that. But they can use now digital tools to spot the anomalies, the, oh, what if we drill here? Do we have something completely new and different? <laughs> of course, Hermosa Taylor, <laughs> it was it, it was a... Uh, uh, they, they noticed there were sulfides in the bottom of the pit limits because they never drilled this thing beyond open pitable limit. And they said, oh, I wonder where this goes to. And they just started following it. And it went for like a couple thousand meters down under, I mean, as deep as 4,000 4, uh, or 1,000 or meters of vertical depth. Uh, the thing ended up being huge. It ended up being a world-class deposit. And somebody should have guessed right from the beginning that the, uh, well, if this is here, this is part of something. What's the big picture? What's all going around? And that's what makes this game fun. And you listen to geologists, they're always trying to rethink everything. Uh, and a lot of times they don't know how to explain it to the market. So you can hear the story, check it out and say, wow, if this is true, buy it now and then help people understand it. And if they can get some money going, Maybe you have a brand new discovery play unfolding before your eyes. In the database here, do you limit subscribers or uh, what more should investors know? In terms of number of, of Number of subscribers, yes. Yeah, some subscription oh, well, services well, well, lim limit it. I think the subscribers themselves are, are limiting the number these days. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah. And one, that's part of the macro I, uh, cycle? <laughs> um, 
there with this type of do-it-yourself thing there there really is no limit uh, uh right now people can still subscribe for for 450 uh, a year and i i may end up uh, depending on how many i have grandfather those in to be able to renew but it'll probably be a couple thousand dollars uh, a year afterwards because this is really aimed at family offices uh uh, high net worth investors who actually have a slave to do all their work, uh, you know, 2000 bucks for that type of investor is, is nothing. Uh, it's also something for, for clubs like investment clubs, the, the Slack forums, they're incredible. You can s- structure it with all these channels. You get, you know, your, 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 your 10, 20 members of your club in there, you do the sharing. And if the club subscribes to the something like this, all those club members and that can go there and, and research, use the tools and uh, and come up with their own ideas and monitor them. So it's really going from me being a stock picker to being a facilitator of do-it-yourself research. And, you know, I'm obviously not going to have 10,000 subscribers at two $2,000 a year. So I don't think there's a problem of limiting, limiting. And it's not quite a wiki forum, right? This is an open source can or or can users make comments and contribute to what you've already put in the system. Yeah. In the Slack forum that I run every, every, every subscriber provided they, they don't become abusive uh, also gets to be a member in there. Most of them just lurk and read. Like I post quick comments, links to like financial times articles. Uh, I use it as a notification system to tell people, okay, here's a new, new tracker that I published on this and that. And, and some, some will interact and comment about stuff. Uh, it's it, it helps leverage me because I can't do keep my eyes on everything. Somebody would say, "Did you see this?" And I say, "Oh wow, I missed this." Like somebody last night pointed out that this Australian company just pulled some really stunning holes on its Alaska gold play, which was one of those sort of intrusion-related gold systems. And so I did the did looked at it and said, "Okay, here here's what this means immediately." Now here's what we need to see with these additional holes to see if this repeats itself and changes this from some, you know, big multi-million ounce one gram system to maybe something that will grind in the one into the one and a half two gram open pitable system. So it's, it's, it, it works, it works well in that way. And, and of course, everybody buys the stock first before they mentioned it. If you want to look at it, but, but that's, that's the way it works. Uh, uh, for me, the big difference of this is when I'm no longer picking favorites uh well then i'm not really recommending anything and my handicap has been okay so so stock is up i own it i need to sell it but i can't sell it until i tell everybody to sell it and of course then the stock tanks instantly so i'm not happy my subscribers aren't happy so that whole model if you're going to own it and not just make money from the subscription fees uh that doesn't really work for me and and, and the future system I'm just one. I'm just like all the subscribers who can do do what they please within the system. And you said it's four fifty through the end of the year. Just to clarify for listeners. Yes. Yes. Okay. For, for, for an annual membership, and that gives you access to everything. And I will have a sort of a, fre- a updated list of companies that sort of qualify as bottom fish uh, for the end of the year. I'm quite excited about uh, this. I just got all the the June thirtieth. Uh, Financials have just been processed and loaded into the system. There'll be another batch in uh, late November of the September 30th financials, which will probably be more revealing about the actual financial 
status. So we'll be carrying on with this through the end of the year. All right. Anything else we should say, John? I really appreciate this thorough overview. And it's, you know, that was a, a very instructive. I just love how you gave a, a paradigm to assess because, you know, you, you look at an explorer and you say, I wonder if they're going to be successful or not. Like it's, you didn't just bring a binary template to analyzing it. And I love the the various cyclical overviews that you analyze uh, a potential mining speculation with. Yeah, it's become much more complicated than it used to be. And in the 80s and 90s, I didn't need to know anything about macro or metal prices and all that. And the juniors were, were really more about discovery exploration. You made money when a new discovery happened. It was the China super cycle in, uh, kicked in in 2003, which completely transformed the sector. No junior had ever done a PEA before that. All of a sudden, feasibility demonstration became the name of the game because the mining industry didn't believe China. It kept forward selling its copper and doing, doing nothing about developing new stuff. And, and, and the resource juniors and the people in it, they said, this is real. Found all these, like, like the Ross BD aluminum model, had accumulated all these uh, dead deposits that weren't good enough in, in, in South America. And all of a sudden with copper $2 plus, when it used to be sort of 75 cents a pound, this was a new reality. And, and that completely transformed the sector. So it is a much richer, broader sector than it used to be, which is good because, you know, thinking about where are metal price trends are, is the energy transformation going to be real? What metal demand will be affected by that? What about the horrible geopolitics that the world is lurching towards? Uh, is stuff that comes through or out of China uh, going to be suddenly not available to the rest of the world? Even this ESG stuff that's happening, where uh, 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 consumer opinion-sensitive groups like Tesla want to be able to show that uh, our inputs are clean, that they aren't from, from some dirty place in, in China where the dump costs are dumped downstream and we're making tons of money because we're, we're cheating, we're, we're, we're using these uh, low-cost metals. That we want to show that we're, it's coming from, say, FPX Nickel, one of my favorites, uh, favorites right now, this 0.12% nickel project that's got, you know, 40 years life, maybe even double that if the, the van drilling comes in. And this will be clean, might even be carbon neutral. And it'll be stable jurisdiction. Uh, and it works at 775, 75 nickel. And with, with blockchain technology emerging where, you know, metal batches can actually be entered into a source certification, these these uh, end users, um, they won't be able to greenwash anymore and just BS about where they get the stuff from. They'll actually be able to show where it comes from. And people will say, are you, are you getting your metals as a, as a byproduct of SXEW leaching in, in America so that the cobalt is clean and not from the uh, killing fields in Kivu province uh, of, of, of Congo? So it, it's an exciting time for the resource juniors and the fact that they can handle this spectrum all the way from, you know, grassroots to uh, even construction in some cases. Uh, it's very different from when I started in the eighties and the infrastructure I set up, uh, it's, it's going to facilitate this as my playground in the next uh, 20 years of doing this. I'm not going to retire. This is too much fun. 
Yeah, well, John, thank you for sharing with me and my listeners today. FPX Nickel is a show sponsor, but this uh, presentation was not sponsored. But if you want to learn more about John's work, go to his website, kaiserresearch.com. If you have uh, questions, you can email John directly, jkaiser at kaiserresearch.com. And uh, there's no option to kick the tires on this, right, John? It's just you've kind of laid it out. And if they want to move forward, they can just make that decision. Yeah, not, not right now. We're, we're migrating the whole system into the cloud. That should be done in a few weeks. And then uh, and then I, I might, uh, I won't have a free thing because too many fakers come in there, but I might have a cheap uh, kick the tire type option just so that real people with a credit card that works uh, can go in there <laughs> and, and, and try out the search engine. Excellent. Okay, well, I really appreciate this again. And thank you for coming on the show, John. Thank you for having me on your show, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.